Hello and welcome to this GCP short on insuring the uninsurable by using a captive produced in collaboration with friends of the podcast, Risks. Over the next 15 minutes, I'll be addressing this subject with Oliver Schofield, managing partner at Risks, and a man with more than 30 years of experience in alternative risk transfer and captives. Welcome back to the pod, Ollie. Thank you. Good to hear from you again, Richard. And joining Ollie and myself is Glenn Ellis, a former risk manager with BT, who also has practical experience of global corporate underwriting for captive programs with Zurich and AIG. Prior to his risk management career, Glenn spent 10 years as a Lloyds broker and specialised in casualty and financial lines programmes design and placement. Hi, Glenn. Great to have you back on the pod. Thank you, Richard. Ollie, the term uninsurable can be used to mean quite different things and means different things to different groups of people. And it's probably fair to say that the definition of what is uninsurable possibly expands in a hard market. What, what do you understand by the term uninsurable to mean in, in kind of the context we're going to be talking about it today? Well, let, let's start with a, a high-level statement. Um, our view is that risks that arise from activities that are deemed to be illegal are uninsurable in most cases because to do so would be breaking the law, clearly. But we have to look at the nuances behind that because what might be illegal in one territory might well be legal in another. So, for example, the cannabis captive that was set up in uh, in Vermont is permissible, but may not be permissible in many other jurisdictions. Um, I think then moving on to the next level of definition, perhaps more mainstream, we can break that down to two categories of uninsurable risks, being pure business risks, such as trading risks, or even historic known issues, such as third-party liabilities arising from the historic use of asbestos. Then another level would be uninsurable risks uh, that contemplate new corporate risks for which underwriters have insufficient data, insufficient experience or knowledge, such as in the fast-growing manufactured timber space. And then finally, nowadays, we must add into the uninsurable domain uh, those risks for which underwriters can no longer provide cover at an economically acceptable price. So for example, today we could potentially put DNO and PI into those into that category because as we know we're seeing capacity shrinkage and uh, and premium hikes in those spaces. So quite a broad definition, but when drilling down, um, my favorite is actually the first. As here at risks, we believe that all legal activities are insurable, but perhaps just not in the traditional insurance markets. The second to last point you make around in a hardening market, insurance can uh, the, the costs can become uh, so prohibitive that it becomes uninsurable, and that that's exactly where we are at the moment with some lines, as you mentioned, uh, DNO and, and professional indemnity, which we touched upon last year uh, specifically. Glenn, from a risk manager's perspective, then what does the term uninsurable mean to you? Well, Richard Nolly, for me, uninsurable risk has evolved over the years. And quite rightly so. If we look at the traditional property and casualty approach, uninsurable risks are those which do not satisfy the long-held tenets and definitions of what is insurable. For example, the insurable interest a corporation or business entity has in its assets and the legal liabilities that corporation might encounter arising out of, say, its day-to-day activity uh, activities or business operations. However, you know, that traditional 
PNC approach does struggle to respond rapidly to new and, and emerging risks. For example, where corporations are forced to review their business models, repurpose themselves, uh, and quickly too, in response to perhaps online competition in their market sector, or as we have seen recently, um, a pandemic. Uh, underwriters, they are justifiably wary of new and unquantified risks, but a so-called uninsurable risk can be acceptable, in my opinion, to insurers and reinsurers for that matter, with the appropriate data set and underwriting information. So I'd like to, uh, to put forward something which may be a bit controversial, but suggest that the term uninsurable is no longer valid today. Fantastic, Glenn. And we're going to come on to uh, some examples, perhaps, actually, now of of where that, that might be the case. It might be deemed to be uninsurable by one part of the market, but a different structure uh, may actually fix the problem. So can these so-called uninsurable risks be financed through a captive? And, and, and Glenn, perhaps you could start by providing uh, an example of that being done successfully. Cyber risks, and, and uh, more particularly, the first-party cyber risks, these are the costs associated with upgrading um, a business, a businesses, IT systems, um, security systems, uh, perhaps following an, an attack on, on those systems. I'm not an authority in this area. <laughs> However, I am aware of risk managers who have been unable to purchase this uh, coverage, first party cyber cover. But it's a coverage which is, which is offered in the market. Um, and they have successfully placed uh, those exposures in the captive. Uh, so effectively, a primary layer, which the captive takes, which of course leaves open uh, options for excess of loss placements um, on top of that. So uh, first party cyber risks are, are an example I would put forward as uh, of having been successfully placed in the captive. And, and Oli, I believe you've got a couple of other examples uh, you can share with us as well. Yes, indeed. Uh, the first one is around the asbestos space. Um, we have a client that manufactured industrial drying units in the 50s, 60s and 70s that were used in the pulp and paper sector. And of course, traditionally, these units would have contained asbestos as that was standard at the time. Now, that particular client has a range of liability policies that should have responded to any claims, but the client also knew that some of those policies would not be able to respond because either those insurers were no longer trading or there was lack of documentary evidence going back to, the, uh, to for example, the 50s. The challenge for this particular client was that they were considering listing on the stock exchange and they needed, therefore, to be able to make a clear unequivocal statement about the historic liabilities um, and how they were being dealt with. So the solution lay in the organization establishing captive to self-insure the gaps to cover any historic policies that were unable to respond and then seek reinsurance protection from a specialist alternative risk transfer market to help them smooth the cost impact of any losses greater than their expected level. This was a 10-year program that we put together, and it gave me exactly what they needed um, in, in that uh, example. I suppose the other one, which is more, much more recent, is a client of ours that is a commodities trading business. And they wanted to have insurance to ensure that they had sufficient funding available 
to cover the bonuses that still needed to be paid to their key traders uh, in a trading year where the profits were actually much lower than anticipated. And their quandary was that if the bonus levels were not maintained, there was a real risk that some of those traders, their key assets essentially, would walk away from the business. So what we did was we established a program in their captive whereby a preset percentage of the value of every trade was paid as a premium into their captive. And in turn, if they ever needed it, these funds would be paid back as claims to cover the bonus shortfall. So they created an insurance policy, an insurance structure to be able to protect them from this event. So going back to what Glenn was saying about, is the word uninsurable uh, really uh, prevalent in our industry anymore? Uh, this kind of sh- proves that, uh, very much proves that point. Fascinating, particularly that last example, Ollie, is really, really interesting. I, I imagine when you put together a, a program like that, which is so unique, and I imagine just wouldn't be uh, entertained at all by the commercial market, what, what is it that regulators need to see, as, as, as in captive regulators need to see to feel comfortable if, if you come to them with this, this business model and, and, and business plan and proposition to ensure this kind of thing for a captive? How, how do you get regulators comfortable on that, on that kind of program? Uh, it's a great question. And it's a, a very, very important topic, of course. What we need to be able to do is to demonstrate to the regulators that there really is a risk to the business that absent any solution, the firm would face financial distress. So to do that, we need to sit down and work with the regulators to explain what that financial risk is, how that financial risk could be triggered, uh, whether that situation could have arisen in the past and how much it financially would have impacted the business. So a, a claims record, if you like. Also, we need to discuss with them what a fair and reasonable premium and risk financing structure is. And crucially, that the activity that causes the presence of that risk in the first place is legal. Now, we have found that as we discuss all of these aspects with the regulators, um, we help them to understand that, yes, this is a risk. It might be a pure business risk, but it is still a risk that can be protected against. Glenn, what's what's your view on, on that particular question regarding uh, kind of getting regulators uh, comfortable with, with these kinds of programs? I would look at financial probity. Uh, I don't think that's a term that we hear bandied around much, but it's there in in principle all the time. And that is that the regulators need to um, be comfortable that every aspect of the captive deal, not least anti-money laundering legislation and risk transfer requirements are fully satisfied and that the captive deal really is insurance uh, for the original insured, which may sound obvious, but that is so important. I'd add also that the captive managers um, have a responsibility to demonstrate and evidence to their own original insureds and probably subsidiary companies as well, that the captive is the logical and cost-effective option where the market cannot or will not provide coverage. So it comes full circle. So the financial probity of a particular captive deal, I, I think, is something that the, uh, I would say is something that the uh, regulators must feel comfortable with. 
Just lastly, Ollie, on these kind of more, I'd use the word exotic programs, I don't know if that is quite the right term, but when we're talking about these kinds of insurance programs which utilize a captive, do they only work or do they best work when there is an existing captive already in place by the insured or can something like that, that bonus protection program be used to set up a captive and be kind of almost a monoline is is there a is there an easy answer to that question yeah i think there is um the 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 captive is the vehicle that enables the uh the structuring of these alternative deals Uh, whether an organization already has an existing captive or or establishes a captive or sell captive um to specifically house this type of structure um is somewhat secondary in these two examples that I just gave, the trading example, they did establish a captive specifically and purely for that uh, that risk. And as time went on, they then expanded the captive's usage to cover their traditional lines of cover. In the earlier example, the organization already had a captive and they were already writing um, some of their domestic programs, workers' comp and so on, um, and then broadened the captive out to be able to cover uh, the, uh, the asbestos risks. So it works. it works both ways. I think what's very interesting uh, in the captive market and the the different domiciles that we have around the world today is the speed at which um, one can set up, for example, a a PCC um, or similar vehicle. Um, If we go back not that many years, um, it was quite a tortuous process to set up your captive or your rent a captive or protected cell. And sometimes that put risk managers off. The fact that we now have an environment where a uh, captive can be set up fairly quickly to respond to those um, issues that a company may have when coverage is, with, is withdrawn by the market or just not available, I, I, I think is a very good story for the risk manager. You know, captives, as we all know, are the ultimate flexible vehicle for businesses to be able to manage all of their risks in an efficient manner. What we need to be careful of, though, is that we avoid going back to the days of extreme ART structures that we had perhaps 15 years ago, whereby organisations were seeking to use their captives for risks that were not uh, established in the same way as we've described, where there was no demonstration that there was really a risk to the business um, and people were looking to use their captives for perhaps more nefarious purposes. Those days are gone and we must not return to them. We must consider that captives are absolutely there to help guide an organisation through the very challenging waters that we are in at the moment uh, for uninsurable risks that have a direct impact on the financial state of their organisations. Well, thank you to Oliver Schofield, founder and managing partner at Risks and risk professional Glenn Ellis for a very informative 15 minutes that has hopefully given you some additional food for thought. If you would like to learn more about Ollie and Risks, you can find contact details and all the other GTP episodes they have featured in over the past 18 months on their Friend of the Podcast page, which you can find at globalcaptivepodcast.com forward slash risks and risks is spelt r-i-s-c-s there is a link in the episode description as well well we'll be back with gtp 47 on sunday the 14th of march we've got some really great guests lined up or most of that episode has already been recorded um, but in the meantime stay safe stay well and see you next time captives mm-hmm.